Welcome to the T's and C's. Tisa and Chantel. Also known as the Terms and Conditions. Welcome to a, another episode of T's and C's The Reflection, um, our weekly mini-sode during the COVID-19 global pandemic. I am a little bit giddy, but I need to control myself because we keep getting overexcited with the legends that we've had on the podcast. So let me just calm myself before I introduce this person, a legendary feminist, digital sociologist, probably one of my favourite people that analyses class in the world. Absolute legend, someone that supported us on the podcast from the beginning, someone who has just been such an important motivator, inspiration to so many people in academia. With pleasure, please welcome Professor Bev Skeggs. Hi, Bev. (laughs) Wow, what a welcome. (laughs) Thank you very much. Sorry, I don't mean to embarrass you, Bev. You're brilliant. (laughs) Very, very kind. Today we're going to be talking about Solidarity and Care, which is a new public platform by the Sociological Review. Could you tell us a little bit about this, Bev? Yeah, the idea behind it was to rethink how we can live together, both through a pandemic and if we survive it, uh, how we can live after a pandemic. Because, you know, everything we know from history, everything we know from uh, studies of pandemics is that they are really, really serious. And now we're in it. Now we know. But I think at the beginning, I was very concerned that we had a sociological voice going through uh, what it meant to live through a pandemic. And I was also really, really concerned to document stories of how people looked after each other, how people cared for each other um, and the types of yeah, support and solidarity that we see. So. I think I'd learned by understanding lots around austerity that there were lots of local initiatives going on to support people who were in difficult circumstances. There was a lot happening that we never heard about. We heard about mean people, we heard about cruel people, we heard about people who were using the system. And I think mainstream as mainstream media got more and more vindictive about the vulnerable and about those who were actually suffering, I felt we needed alternative stories of how people do actually care about each other, how people do support each other, and that we're not all individualistic, greedy and cruel people. And I think sociologists have always studied forms of solidarity. They've always studied social relations. So I just felt we needed somewhere where we could actually have a document of all that. Also, also, I think it's very important when you see all those local stories of solidarity and care that we use those against what we now see coming. We use those stories to say, no, 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 people do care about each other. They really, really do. They're not all brutal individualists and so I wanted to have an archive that could store and contain all of that material. Bev I'm going to say something right you know when someone has a really good idea you know it's a good idea when it seems like common sense you think well that's obvious right yeah yeah but that's yeah. the thing because no that's such a good idea but no one yeah. thinks of it, it is. because it is such a good idea it's yeah. such a good idea because I think what always gets lost is the stories of real people who had a coping <laughs> crisis yeah and it allows someone like so for example yeah. The Blitz, for example, the, yeah. the people, the elite, 
it allows them to take that narrative and generate a myth. Exactly. And if you speak to the big people how it, how exactly. it really was at that time, yeah. they all told yeah. you something completely different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, I think I, I, I think we need so many more alternative stories at the moment. You know, we don't get them. They're very, very hard to find. And I think after the coverage of Brexit, after the closing down of uh, British media in really traditional ways, after the demonisation of the working class in all its varieties, I just felt that the world I was living in was actually quite different. It was a world where people did look out for each other, where they did speak across differences, where they would do things for each other. And it just felt very, very different. And I, I felt increasingly that world was not being recognised publicly at all. You know, four weeks in, when we had uh, lots of difficulties around how do we build a platform, licensing, ethics, with uh, withdrawal of people, different medium. I mean, it was quite complex. There were nine of us. So it wasn't just me. There was a team of nine of us in the, in the end trying to get this thing to work. It had to be done. And I think now I'm really, really pleased it has. It reminds me, Bev, and I think it was you actually a number of years ago now. I remember talking to you about, I think, my life and whatever. And you basically explaining to me, then prompting me to look at reading about care and how mm. you explained how care itself was something that sociology needed to be concerned with. And that's not something that I'd come across up until PhD level for a variety of reasons. But like, Thinking about solidarity and care, it's just something that being caring, as in whether it's with parents, partners, children, whatever, is just something that's always been sort of common sense to me or something that's just been part yeah. of my life. I've not really understood yeah. how political yeah. it is. That sounds, yeah. I always say really yeah. basic things on this podcast, but I'm yeah. just being honest. I didn't realise yeah. how integral it is for us to understand these things as sociologists and document them as you yeah. say it's a really hard one because i don't want to make vast generalizations our dispositions towards each other have become much more callous and competitive and you see that i mean i'm you know academia breeds competition it breeds insecurity it breeds narcissism it breeds egos and i think it's really hard to build care into that but if you're a supervisor of students doing dissertations struggling phd students or early career scholars who you know don't know where the next job's coming from or people even much later on trying to get grants I think we need care and I was lucky enough to work with quite a few people who were caring but that's not always the case I had an experience where uh, not a lot of care and so I think it made me really really think about what sort of worlds do we want and I, I made a choice recently to take up a new job because uh, I thought I'm old, I'm getting near the end of my career and I just want to be with, and I had three criteria and they had to be caring, they had to be funny, <laughs> they had to be clever. Yeah. I wanted to kind of laugh, be cared for, care for other people because I think caring for other people is important. I think we, we yeah. like, most of us like to care for other people and I wanted to have fun. So I think... These are the things we underestimate in, in what is a very brutal, cruel world, I think. So growing up, I would say without what was what I was socialised to believe is a, is very instrumental versions of human nature. Through the music I was consuming, through the pop culture I was consuming, it's about looking after number one. And then the jobs I pursued in the city was the same thing. 
So those attributes, like having a sense of humour or being nice to people, yeah. they were seen as a, as a weakness. Everyone you dealt with was on an instrument or whatever. So I could be nice to you, but for a reason. Yeah. It's all very instrumental and very, and very efficient. So I'm looking for the quickest way to get my result. I don't really care about you per se. I might tolerate you, but there's no care involved. I, I tolerate you. Ambivalent towards you, really. And yeah. that has been the kind of guiding ethos almost so when I look at kids when I was doing some mentoring with kids I would see that in that part inside to them I feel like what Bev's saying is right we live Mm. in this neoliberal like in the shadow Mm. of Thatcher's society like that is what we live in but there are people day to day within our lives that are resisting these things so even though that experience Mm -hmm. is definitely accurate and you're always I feel like you're daily we're pushed to not act in a way that is neoliberal but often we do because that is the society we live in but at the same time as those things existed and how we're brought up and what have you and I think class plays into what you're talking about as well T really importantly equally like it's not that it's like I was just one way those things of caring they exist with, with me all the time but you repress them at certain points like I said I see that I would see acts of caring every day in that environment still mm. In a high pressured environment, mm. even though it's not the it's not the mainstream discourse, it still exists in that ether. So it's a case of where they exist uncomfortably next to each other. There's a tension between care and that instrumental nature that of, of neoliberalism, because you you can't be you can't be so efficient all the time. You're a human being, and that is that's the tension, right? Yeah, and and we need we need love, we need nurture, we right. need kindness. Mm. Otherwise, what would we be? We'd be machines. And I, I entered the world differently because I had a father who was very selfless. You know, he like repaired everybody's things he had in the road. He did everything. Mm. <laughs> he, he would always be looking after somebody. And my mum would be the same. Uh, my mum was called a doormat by some of the neighbours because people walk. They said, you know, people walk all over her. But basically, she was just looking after people. And I thought, what's wrong with looking after people? And so there was. I think I grew up with my father really saying, stop being selfish if I ever wanted anything. So when I enter the world of theorizing individualism, theorizing competitiveness, I find it really weird because I can see it institutionally. I can see it in universities. I can see it around me. But a lot of what I learned and a lot of the people I know are still actually really, really kind. <laughs> and they would prioritise care and kindness over anything else. Mm-hmm. Because they know. I think if, you're, if you don't have a lot, you rely on other people to share things. If you think everything's going to fall apart, as it often does, is working class communities, you know, the proximity to, to everything uh, mm-hmm. suddenly collapsing you rely on other people who are around you much, much more because you know things could all go wrong suddenly. So you're never going to be brutal to your neighbour or nasty to them in the sense that you you may need to rely on them at some point. And I think we lost a lot of that. I grew up with a lot of that and I think we lost it. Um, and we lost it in sociology. People started theorizing about individualism and about risk. And that's why I wrote against all that. Um, And I think we lost it in academia because we're made to be really, really competitive with each other. You know, for the ref, people used to start talking about people uh, as if they were real subjects uh, in terms of their ref grading. You know, oh, that person's a five star. 
Mm. Bev, Bev, just for the purpose of our listeners that aren't academics that don't understand the ref, could you just summarise ah, what the ref is? Oh, the REF is this competitive system that measures one's productivity and performance in academia, and it measures it in terms of where you've published, uh, what you've published, and it changed criteria every four years. It's now every six years. Um, over it used to be the quality of your publication. Then it became the um, uh, the amount of publications. Then it became the amount of research money you had. So it's just like a performance measure that constantly changes, leading people to feel ridiculously insecure because they never really know what they're meant to be doing because academic work doesn't work at that speed. So it, it, it's a performance measure, really. Very neoliberal. What about outputs, Very right? neoliberal, <laughs> very, very. But you could see why it can generate in people that kind of insecurity because yeah. you measure your success by the amount of things you have, your output, right? Yeah. And yeah. In, like I said, in the place where I am now, people take get great care to show you how much they have. The, big, the ha- bigger house they've got, the nicer doors they have, yeah. the bigger yeah. cars. Yeah. The people out here with electric cars, so they've got their own electric uh, power things outside. Oh, and how, wow. How much they're looking after the environment. So... And I can see in the kids, things matter. Having things matter. Yeah. It's the performance, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. I have to have the latest trainers, right? If I don't have the latest trainers, I'm mm. considered poor. I mm. don't belong. I get yeah. marked out. Having things is an outward sign that I belong to a group. Yeah. And that shows success in this society, right? Mm. Mm. Well, I think belo- belonging there, we underestimate the significance of belonging. And mm. we don't necessarily, we do now, but we wouldn't necessarily mm. need that pair of trainers to belong. But we do need to belong and we, we need mm. to think of other ways in which we belong to other people in different ways. Mm. And I don't mean like ownership. I mean, how we connect to them. I, but, and I think so when I was looking at the far right and I could see there's a, a kind of shift to that of how, I, how do I create belonging or different types of solidarities. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because one of the things that on, in that particular scene is that they had fragmented in the 80s. So they're looking to try and work. And, and this is what the all right, alt right did quite successfully. Mm. Through culture, they kind of did this. Yep. Through bits of culture and like memes and stuff like that, to kind of having a sense of humour is what they would call it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I need Sorry. to have I need to have a side moment with our listeners. Can you believe that Tiso's managed to bring in the alt right? Oh, conversation about care. I do think it's relevant, but like how you can bring them in. <laughs> But no, that's the contrast, right? People think they're quite individualistic, horrible people, but they are using the same tactics of care, of humour, to bring disparate groups together. So someone who's a uh, someone who's a skinhead is quite different from someone who's a member of the Ku Klux Klan. They're completely different through humour and uh, kind of disparaging remarks about other group, groups of people. They've come together, and I think, well, that's actually quite weird. Like yeah. through humour, they've united two groups. They found a solidarity. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I think I think I think you're onto something there because there's an amazing book I read about the Ku Klux Klan, the women in the Ku Klux Klan, and yeah. it's by Catherine Blee, and it was written in the 80s or 90s. And mm. again, this is where we get complications around care because it's it, these women all really care about each other in the community. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> you've got to think it's it's like any any form of any social relation. How is it mobilized for what purposes? So, you know, we've mm. seen with the alt-right, they are the perfect manipulators of anti-authority. You know, mm. while the left squabbles with itself, they just go out there and say that they are anti-authority and anti-elitism was before. 
<laughs> it's the elite saying it. I mean, they play yeah. a blinder. Their, their comm strategies are brilliant at using all these things like solidarity, like mm-hmm. care, like belonging, like anti-authority. They manage to pull them together and they send them in a very, very different direction. And I think we need to pay attention to that. So I think it's really good that you've you brought the alt right in. Really good. It, no, it is. It's a reminder. And T's always <laughs> making me keep an eye on what they're doing. It's it's just like it, it comes up a lot, but it's important. You're right, T, because they are an important group to be watching consistently. As well, Beth, just thinking about things that you and T were just saying, particularly about neoliberalism and belonging, and also thinking about academia and the rest. What COVID-19 has done has highlighted or made us question to what value do these things actually have when it comes down to it? Like we've got everyone is affected by COVID-19, not even it's not evenly felt, of course. um, And that cuts across race and class. But it's really important that we sort of take this moment, what we've been trying to do on the podcast and think about how we can live differently or try and really contest these neoliberal structures more than ever obviously as you say Bev people have been doing this but maybe now is the time when we can really try and get people to really think about what is of value or who is what who and what is of value in society um uh, totally and I had no idea when uh I began the project the solidarity and care project that it would that we would end up where we are now I mean my god uh, I, I I'll try not to rant but I cannot believe that across the world there are governments that are just willing to kill their own populations and I remember when my parents both my parents were killed by the privatization of the NHS and I wrote about that and I was very very upset about it at the time because I had to watch them both die in agony and that's probably one of the hardest things you can ever do that motivated me to do this what I wrote about then was called neglect by design so I could see that by selling everything off selling all the health services off not giving any care at all about care workers or care homes or care agencies 3,700 different care agencies operate nobody knows how to work with them there's a massive massive amount of employment Brexit was literally uh, throwing out loads of uh, care workers they were leaving because they knew they couldn't get in they couldn't get paid they'd have no legality so I was watching that set up the solidarity in care and then what we see See, and I still, I'm in shock. I'm in shock about the UK. I'm in shock about Sweden. Kind of expected it from Brazil and and the US. I'm in shock about the brutal disregard for life. The ability of a government to experiment with its own population as if it's a, a kind of game theory plan. The cravenness of scientific advisors who just count out a government because they're looking for the next research grant I guess I mean it's been shocking so all the things that I thought were horrific in 2016 after years of austerity after the privatization of the NHS I now cannot believe they've got so much worse we are now at the logical end point of killing what sociologists have called surplus populations i.e those that are unproductive 
for those in society who need to make a profit from them. So what you're seeing at the moment are huge numbers, obviously, you know, 60, I always have them written down, then I have to change them nearly every day, 60,000 excess deaths up to mid-May, 20,000 elderly people killed in care homes. Most elderly people are not in care homes. So think about how many in excess of that exactly. Trauma that care workers are experiencing, the horrors that frontline NHS workers are experiencing, transport workers, you know. So it's like the logic of all those policies that were about neglect these people, kind of let them die slowly, has now been speeded up and it's like, yep, just let them die quickly. Just let them go. It has been extraordinary. And I I can't quite believe it. I had to turn off the news, which I felt compelled to listen to, because it was just so disturbing every day. And then I had friends in Sweden, because I worked in Sweden uh, for a year, and their government, again, callous disregard. This is an experiment for our future. It's all, I mean, I do think there are new politics. And if you don't believe me, read Byline Times, watch a journalist called Nafiz Ahmed, who writes about the digital privatisation of the NHS. Look at things like NHS X, look at the artificial intelligence programmes that are being developed by this government. And I feel it's as if we are just an experiment. So I think we have to find other ways of living this experiment. We really do, because, you know, this is malevolent neglect by design now, as one of my friends described. It's not just neglect by design. It's not just purposeful neglect. It's like they actually believe that this is okay. But if I properly deep it, like I'm sitting here listening to you, Bev, it's the first time in a couple of weeks I've properly deeped what is happening because I kind of have to not go yeah. too far because I can't I can't get out of fucking bed like because it's that because yeah. I'm like that yeah. I deal with but when you actually yeah. deep these people know what they're doing yeah. it, it just there's no words like yeah. and people wow. say it's bumbling incompetence and at first I thought yeah they are just really really incompetent but actually there's a lot of people behind this read you know like oh god do I have to talk about Dominic Cummings I mean what an arrogant arrogant unbelievable character but I don't really want to talk about him I think he's just so disgusting and deplorable but if you actually read some of his blogs this is eugenics for a new age and we should all be really really worried really worried he believes in this stuff and he calls it science he's like one of those kids at school who never really knew much about what was going on but pretended they did by reading really weird books. Kind of linked it back to kind of Hannah Arendt stuff on Nazism and the Holocaust, oh. like the, the kind of the kind of the end game of, of yep. the Enlightenment. Like, and this is this, that same kind of thing. The Enlightenment produces these perverse yep. outcomes of efficiency, eliminating people in yep. a very efficient manner. I try not to say this to my friends because they always say they and they, and it kind of, for them, they creep into conspiracy theory. But I'm trying to say it's, it's, the, it's this structure that develops its own, its own momentum. Yeah. And when it starts to keep yeah. going, it's it's unstoppable, and it's exactly. like unleashing nationalism. Yeah. Once you once you open it, it can never be stopped. Yeah. It's run its course, 
And when it does run its course, it always ends in violence, historically speaking. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. And pandemics are often a time mm. where we do see them. You know, it's obviously the most vulnerable because they can't protect themselves as much. Mm. But there's some really mm. odd outcomes in, in this pandemic as well, because, you know, the people that it's killing apart from the elderly are BAME groups and it's killing them mm. in very different ways. But, you know, one of the most significant ways is diabetes, too. Uh, you know, <clears throat> really high levels of diabetes too, or lack of vitamin D, which apparently we've known about for, for years. Yeah, um, yeah, and and vitamin that, yeah. D is really, really significant. If anybody's listening mm-hmm. to this program, any BAME populations, just go and get loads of vitamin D because it really, I've <laughs> seen all the scientific reports now. It really is significant yeah. in the same way as vitamin A was for rickets for yeah. working class kids in the 1950s i think yeah my, my mom makes me take it because it's Good. like essentially, essentially with mental problems and stuff like that but um yeah. I, I i was when i look at pandemics and obviously the kind of big thing the pandemic is an existential threat that comes to everyone but in the past because the kind of equipment wasn't there so i'm thinking back obviously like um the justinian plague so he yeah. emperor caught the plague so rich people could die but right now rich people are taking measures to protect themselves right so the yeah. pandemic doesn't really affect them in the same way that it affects us or it has affected people in the past pandemics before truly affected everyone but yeah. right now yeah. people like trump can avoid that they can take what did he take that hydrochloric acid or something <laughs> what god what an, yeah, yeah, yeah who knows <laughs> <laughs> but before pandemics would i'm thinking back to the uh the great plague the 1348 when the black death it was a pop it was a leveler a true leveler but no, this, this one it isn't, this isn't going to be a leveler way. no, no. no. There's, i'd say there's this is really not a leveler the statistics no. are now i had them written down i've got so many statistics <laughs> at the moment but i think if you're upper middle class so they're going over the the household income of 100,000, your chances of dying are 1 in 23. Uh, and we know if you're BAME working class, it's 1 in 4. Statistics are, I need to check to make sure I've got that right, but the statistics are really, really significant in terms of, of differences. There's been those uh, reports that came out really significant ones which again uh, I need to find looking at household deprivation and death rates and things mm-hmm. like multi-generational households are really really significant now who lives yeah. in multi-generational households I did yeah I used to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah you know so yeah. so some of these figures are are really really significant you know if you live in the countryside your chances are much lower and than if you live in a town and a city. So who lives in towns and cities? If you yeah. use public transport, your chances are much higher. I mean, you have to put all these stats together. They, they're not just single figures. When you put them all together and you get very different combinations because doctors obviously are a very high risk group as are nurses. So, you know, yeah, different computations, but really significantly those who were vulnerable through austerity, through health, through housing, through poverty of various different kinds, homelessness, they are so much higher risk categories, so much higher, because they've already got pre-existing problems that, you know, make them vulnerable to a really horrific virus. The structural, aren't they, that those problems, yeah, like... absolutely. Absolutely. So I've been looking at uh, different countries in Africa and how they've responded to the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I was looking over the tally and at one point combined 54 countries had less people had died over the 54 than in, in 
Britain. So at, at one point we had, like, I think we just over 30. They were still at 28, 54 countries, right? So I was thinking, so how did these people who are by any, by our definition, economically, materially, the poorest, right? Mm. Living on less than a dollar a day, how are they coping? Yeah. Living in an informal economy, no lockdown, and they have other diseases. Yeah. And now COVID-19 had come. But these people were forming relations, performing normally, and they had a repressive government who were willing to beat them, uh, trying to enforce a lockdown, but they were still managed to live a life that seemed almost, they, they looked happy. They looked like they were going about doing their business. <laughs> and it was just interesting. How are these people able to function? And in, in Great Britain, someone says, you can't go outside, and everyone has a heart attack. They have a meltdown. The poorest countries in the world, yeah. were able to get on and live their lives. But here, it seemed problematic. So it was a quite a contrast to see the most advanced, best health systems like France compared to Africa, the dark continents. But there are real differences, and it does depend on, on the time. Because I think in some countries, because they've had to deal with Ebola, with HIV, mm. they know how to isolate quickly. They know how to do yeah. things. So my friend in South Africa was saying, you know, their government policy was actually really good uh, at the beginning. And it was um, they had a lot of health workers on the ground who could do a lot of the work telling people what to do, how to survive, whatever they put in. I mean, you know, all this starts falling apart when people start dying en masse. But at the beginning, it was really, really good policies. And he said it was all because they dealt with um, HIV in you know, yeah. on the ground in townships and, you know, trying to make sure that there were health facilities. So I think there are big differences and there are big differences between wanting to keep your population alive. Yes, this, this. and really not caring <laughs> or yes. in Sweden's case, experimenting with them. So yes. I do think there's very, very different approaches. And we do see it. I mean, look at Bolsonaro. I mean, it really what on earth? Yeah, he's weird. Why is he saying things like that? Why is he, is he saying that? You things tell that me something about something about masculinity there. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Him, and, him and Trump. I mean, what? It's bizarre. <laughs> Again, so you watch. Yeah, it's so vile. But then you think they're letting people die. You're watching mm. fascination almost because they're, they're they're more cartoon than a cartoon. But mm. but then you think but. What are they doing? So the idea of freedom, you know, people in Minnesota are going out, mm-hmm. you know, going to get the virus, going to kill lots of other people in the name of freedom, <laughs> you know. Or, or, in, or in the name of religion, like some of the same, like yeah. the Christians, they say, God's going to protect yeah, yeah. me. I'm like, mm. really? Just look at Iran. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. yeah, it is very bizarre. And I think if you have a government that wants to protect its population, South Korea, Taiwan, yes. New Zealand, New Zealand, what a, what a complete star that woman is. She just did a four-day week thinking through into how we deal with this in the future. Because I was making a list of where, where, where are the worst and where are the best countries in the world. You know, those who've actually dealt with it, dealt with it really quickly. They had really good advisors. They knew what they were doing. They locked down very quickly in a very specific way. They had people on the yeah. ground. They had technology. They had track and trace. And they'd learned from China and they'd learned from Italy. I mean, we just yeah. had complete callous disregard of all the knowledge that was coming in. Special mentions the Caribbean islands. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I think also, someone like South Korea, I was looking at in Taiwan. Uh, they're, they're two good examples because I think there's also a kind of a, 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 an economic motive there. So 
the chips and the TV screens and, and all those things. I'm like TMS, TSMC make most of the chips that go into, into um, most of your computers. Like ninety percent of the supply comes from Taiwan, and Taiwan's seeking their own independence now from China. Mm-hmm. So there's a big effort to be to get on top of these things mm-hmm. and South Korea and to connect their economies to America to recouple them. So there's a a capitalist element that kind of runs behind the kind of efficiency of what they got rid of that they control the virus with. Uh, and they need labour. Japan went all out to protect its labour. You know, we know that there's been an, an unemployment in this country and we know mm. that the north of England has been completely disregarded. I think we need to look at those figures very, very carefully. Well, that is a brilliant <laughs> place to end. But that was absolutely brilliant, Bev. Just before we go... If our listeners are interested in getting involved with the platform, what do they need to do or what? who should be contacting Solidarity and Care? The links will be in the episode notes. Great. I mean, when we should have thought about this more carefully, but it's Solidarity and Care at com. So it's really uh, a long and quite complex thing. But just type in Solidarity and Care and look for the sociological review. And there, they can either contact me, they can contact the editor, Erica Lagalise. And there's lots of explanations about how to contribute, whether you want to have you know be published now or save it for a research archive in the future in all sorts of things and how to submit photographs audio visuals all sorts of things i saw some i saw you've got some art on there as well well we're really looking forward to art because yeah lots of people uh have suddenly found out they're artists (laughs) (laughs) they've got time they've got time so yeah blogs art letters all the mediums yeah yeah it's all whatever gets you through and for some people art gets you through we need to know this we need to know how people are coping thank you so so much for joining us Bev that was absolutely brilliant really inspiring and lots of food for thought there listeners we'll be back again next week bye-bye see ya (laughs) 